Automated Podcast. Welcome to Automated. I'm your host, Mark Verbenkov, and in this weekly podcast, we will be exploring the impact of emerging technology on jobs, society, as well as us, with business and technology leaders, researchers, and independent professionals across the world. Okay, so over the past month, Canada, of course, has been experiencing a wave of protests, government overreach, and, of course, a lot of international attention, not really experienced for years, uh, and even some, I think, would say ever. Uh, And in the kind of maelstrom of truckers blasting their horns, politicians labeling people racists, and residents counter-protesting, it has possibly become clear why Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, and decentralized methods of transactions are needed for the future of average citizens in all parts of the world. So I really didn't think I'd ever be using Canada, one of the most progressive and liberal countries out there, as an example for the authoritarian fears many cryptocurrency supporters hold. It's actually honestly been a bit weird preparing this episode as I see my home country uh, being flung into a state of chaos, but the situation was so evident and blatant that I thought it would be valuable for others to hear uh, who haven't really been paying attention to the situation and may not fully understand what's actually been going on there. So whether you are for the mandates or against them, think the protesters were racist white supremacists or a diverse group of freedom-loving blue-collar workers or think that the protest itself was illegal and harmful to the residents of the city of Ottawa or was a necessary act of free speech, expression, and peaceful civil disobedience is really, in my opinion, missing the larger point. And hopefully once I'm done giving a little bit of context about what the trucker convoy tried to do and what was actually happening, this can be made clear. So I'm not here to argue for against the mandates and what the truckers were pushing against. I think it's a very troublesome issue, very problematic, and one that really obscures the more important problems that were raised during this crisis. But a bit of context, I think, is necessary to frame how Bitcoin plays a role in this giant mess that happened in Canada over the last month. So essentially, Canada is one of the few remaining countries to have strict COVID policies, even as we saw other countries across Europe and across the world open up and lift COVID passports and other restrictions in light of the reduced severity of Omicron. And when a new restriction was put on truckers requiring a vaccine passport to travel between the United States and Canada, the protest was really sparked. Uh, For some further context, the truckers were deemed actually as an essential uh, workers during the quarantine period and were hailed as one of the groups of heroes who kept the country running while most of us were hunkering down during our quarantines, uh, ordering off of Amazon. Uh, They were already 90% vaccinated and generally their work is already quite isolated. So the argument as to why this was being imposed on this group Uh, specifically, was confusing for many. So shortly after this new restriction was put in place, a cross-Canada convoy began from Vancouver and ended up in Ottawa, where a few thousand hauler trucks parked outside of Parliament and began protesting to end the mandates against truckers. And because it sparked a lot of attention, it grew, uh, and the desire for all COVID restrictions to be lifted was what the truckers were demanding. 
So again, I'm really not trying to make an argument one way or the other, as I think this is mostly a distraction from the larger issue at hand. I, I need to emphasize that. But it is, again, useful to know a little bit further uh, context surrounding the convoy and what specifically happened in Ottawa, as I know that there are several listeners out there that aren't from Canada and may not have been paying attention. Uh, so now, without going into all of the political specifics, uh, what many argue was the beginning of the ensuing chaos was actually our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and his labeling of the protesters as racists, Nazis, a small fringe majority holding unacceptable views, and part of the misogynist and white supremacist unvaccinated cohort, uh, according to him. So it is true that some of the protest organizers had previous affiliations with white supremacist groups, but there were also First Nation and Jewish representatives amongst them, and no official message of hate, bigotry, or racism of any kind was put forth officially. Um, a single Nazi flag was seen at the protest uh, earlier on, though there are some discussions um, that the protester uh, who was using the flag, was actually warning people about the government becoming like the Nazis rather than actually being in support of them and the flag. Uh, but if you were to watch any of the live streams of the actual protesters themselves, it became pretty obvious that they were made up from a very diverse range of nationalities and the protest itself had children, ice skating rinks, and even a homemade hot tub, uh, which I think was quite useful in the minus 20 degree weather outside in Ottawa. And perhaps most importantly, both unvaccinated and vaccinated people made up the protesters. So there was validity to the counter protests as well that were occurring during this time, uh, most of which were Ottawa residents who had their uh, community disrupted with the constant air horns being blasted and the general disruption of their city. Uh, so you can't really blame them for that. However, there were reports of truckers cleaning the streets of trash, feeding and supporting the homeless, uh, other residents showing their support to the truckers, and emergency lanes being kept open to allow uh, fire trucks and ambulances to go through. But I wasn't really there, so I can't comment on this part with absolute certainty, of course. Um, but what you or I think I, isn't really relevant to my larger point here. Um, what was problematic was that our prime minister, by labeling the protesters as kind of this group of undesirables, essentially broke any chance for a solution through dialogue, because then he would either be you know, willing to talk to Nazis or would prove that he was lying to begin with with his uh, early labeling of this group. But uh, let's move on to the interesting part here. So as dialogue was not an option, the truckers, rather than quitting and going away after a few days of protest um, in the brutal eastern Canadian weather, they actually stayed. And to help pay for the fuel to keep their cabs warm and, uh, of course, their stomachs full, a crowdfunding campaign was started with the American GoFundMe platform. And in around two weeks, about uh, $10 million was raised. It was actually slightly over $10 million. But it was promptly frozen by GoFundMe at the behest of the Canadian government. So GoFundMe then stated that they would not be refunding their donations, but rather repurposing the money to charities of their choosing. There was a push by the Ottawa government to have their funds actually redirected to the police and the city of Ottawa to pay for the roughly 800000 per day price tag of dealing with the protesters. 
So I was actually unable to dig up the exact law that was broken by the protesters. If you know, please let me know. Um, but it was clearly said multiple times that the protests were unlawful, illegal, etc. And this was the justification given to the platform to shut down the funding for the protesters. However, after um, actually quite severe international backlash um, at essentially taking the donations, GoFundMe did backtrack and begin refunding donations. But uh, not apparently one penny was given to the truckers from the platform. So shortly after this, another alternative platform, Give, Send, Go, received several million dollars in donations. I think it was somewhere in the vicinity of uh, upward, um, about $8 million. But it was also shut down, this time through a court order. So um, these two uh, events really starts to lead us to the idea of the importance of cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. So you have protesters and acts of civil disobedience against unfavorable government policy. And the financial support for that cause is completely blocked from any crowdsourcing attempts. But it actually only got worse from here. So in mid-February, Justin Trudeau enacted the Emergency Measures Act of Canada, giving the government immense power to deal with the protesters, as well as having later repercussions, which I'll get into at the end. So for those of you outside Canada and unfamiliar with this act, it actually came into force in 1988 and allows the federal government to take special temporary measures to ensure safety and security during national emergencies. It is a temporary 30-day measure that comes into effect immediately when invoked, but the act must get approval within seven days from Canada's parliament. So it actually replaced the War Measures Act, which had only ever been used during World War I, World War II, and during a real terrorist event in the 1970s uh, in Canada. So following the uh, Emergency Measures Act, or EMA's enactment, there were constant debates in Parliament, the press, and I think generally across the country about whether it was needed or if the current laws were actually sufficient to deal with the protesters themselves and about whether the protest actually constituted a threat to the security of Canada, and whether Canada had just turned into an authoritarian regime or not. But most relevant uh, for this podcast was actually one of the first actions that was taken when the EMA was enacted. And this was the ability for banks to immediately freeze or suspend bank accounts without a court order and without fear of civil liability. So essentially anyone who had partaken or supported the protest could now have their accounts frozen. So over 200 accounts were actually frozen over the next week or so. It was claimed that this was done uh, predominantly to the truckers and other protesters that refused to leave the protest area, uh, though there were also reports that people who had donated to the crowdfunding campaigns had their accounts frozen. Anyone who had their account frozen and left the protest area should have seen uh, their accounts unfrozen or at least begin uh, to have this process uh, underway. Um, but before touching on the importance of cryptocurrencies as, as it relates to all this, I think one final point should really be brought up. Uh, one of many arguments proposed by the Canadian government for enacting the EMA and going after the finances of the protesters was the involvement of nefarious foreign actors attempting to impact, undermine, and generally disrupt Canadian security by funding the protesters. 
So I think that this is actually pretty serious language and really escalated the situation and importance of the protests in many people's minds. Now, I know that when it comes to these types of situations, it is more or less impossible to know exactly what was actually going on at the uh, kind of high levels of government. But on a rare bit of transparency, uh, Canadian news media published uh, comments from the Financial Transactions uh, and Reports Analysis Center of Canada, or FinTrack. And FinTrack facilitates the detection, prevention, and deterrence of money laundering and the financing of terrorist activities in Canada. And during this period, the deputy director said he hasn't seen a spike in suspicious transaction reporting amid concerns about the sources of funds pouring in for this freedom convoy. So though this may have changed later on, what we essentially see is that the agency responsible for tracking problematic transactions says that there was no worry. And then the government in charge uh, was saying the exact opposite. And uh, many people were thinking that they were using this fear as part of their justification for bringing about the substantial powers that had only been used in World War I, World War II, and of course the uh, terrorist activity in the 70s. Okay, so finally, how does Bitcoin tie into all of this? One of the fundamental ideas behind cryptocurrencies is holding your own private keys. You can think of the private key as a password that unlocks the virtual vault that holds your money. And as long as you and only you have access to your private key, your funds are safe and can be managed anywhere in the world just through an internet connection. Essentially, you're acting as your own bank. This is why uh, cryptocurrencies have been used on the black market for drugs, weapons, stolen property, and even possibly assassinations. And is why for years, there was a strong push to have cryptocurrencies attached to these types of negative transactions and not to the more liberating ideas uh, that it was originally intended for. So in fact, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, who of course launched uh, Bitcoin, um, in the Genesis block, this is the first block ever uh, of Bitcoin on January 3rd, 2009, uh, Satoshi left a timestamp referencing the Times' uh, newspaper's front page from the same day. And the uh, title of the newspaper goes as follows, The Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. And this is in reference to the financial crisis and the general disdain that many people, I, th- I would say, assume correctly, um, that Satoshi had for banks and their power to control our hard-earned money and some would say the actual reason that Bitcoin was created in the first place. But unlike your money being held in banks, your cryptocurrency funds cannot be frozen due to your political beliefs not being in line with the main government narrative, because there is no bank or third party or government or other entity that can put pressure on it. And this, I think, is why Canada may have just made the case for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general. If you disagree with the policies your government is enacting and want to show support financially, there is a real risk that the digital instruments to do so can be shut down. Uh, Though previously, this argument was always teetering on the kind of conspiracy theory lines and hearkening back to communist Russia or other modern failed states, where this was actually quite a common practice for the corrupt governments. 
the fears were always explained that these types of ideas would never happen in a modern liberal Western democracy, or so it would seem until now. Now, an argument uh, that these worries might also be a little bit overblown, um, I think is actually a bit certainly justified here. There were only, I put that in air quotes, 200 accounts frozen. Uh, Most are now unfrozen, the Emergency Act has been repealed, and the protests are nowhere near as strong as before. But if we dig just a little bit deeper, there actually might be more justification than previously thought. So as I just said, even though the EMA has been repealed, uh, there are now financial tools that have been put in place permanently. So the government is broadening the scope of Canada's anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing rules to now cover crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers that they use. So not only is this worrisome for now, but I think that the kind of main fear here or concern is that this actually opens the door wide open for future governments who may have a completely different take on what constitutes money laundering or nefarious activities, um, as well as the ideas and the protests potentially behind those things. Want to protest against the pipelines and polluting oil freighters on the West Coast? Might be a bit tricky. How about supporting uh, pro-Indigenous land right rallies? Have a difference of opinion on climate change? You know, these sorts of ideas might be more uh, difficult and more challenging to rally against and support in the future with these new kind of measures being put in place. Um, If you want to have a little bit of a laugh um, dealing with this subject and maybe hear a little bit further about it, Russell Brand has a great short video on this uh, with the link that I'll have in the show notes. So these tools are now available to quell dissent. That's kind of the bottom line. And they limit financial activity. And perhaps by employing the same rhetoric of nefarious foreign actors, future crowdsourcing actions can be fully stopped again in the future. So I think grassroots movements took a really big hit in Canada this month. And if the same tactics, uh, which proved successful in Canada, are used again, it could bring the same issue in other countries. Okay, so one final point of concern, and this regards digital currencies, which is much larger in scope than just what happened in Canada. So I've covered pilot projects and experiments with government-issued digital currencies numerous times in previous podcast episodes over the last two years. Most notably, there have been several projects in China that span entire regions uh, consisting of millions of people. And especially due to the pandemic, there has been a large push to have countries in the West start to think about adopting digital dollar, euro, etc. Though I've generally been a fan of the efficiencies that this would bring, uh, the issues that the trucker protests in Canada, I think, have raised some very serious and fundamental concerns about what a system like this could bring about. If due process can be so easily disregarded, and digital means of fundraising and even personal accounts can be frozen literally overnight in a country like Canada, I hate to imagine what possibilities uh, this could bring about in other countries. One of the ways that the truckers were actually able to keep protesting, even without the GoFundMe money, was that the residents of Ottawa were physically coming and delivering cash and other supplies to them. If countries shift to a digital currency, the, these type of actions could quite possibly no longer be carried out. 
unless people use Bitcoin, of course. But Bitcoin access was frozen as well. So when the EMA was enacted, not only bank accounts were frozen, but some Bitcoin holdings were as well. So this might sound like a little bit of a contradiction to what I said above, uh, but there is one clear difference. Only those crypto funds that relied on third parties were impacted. Example, centralized exchanges. Any cryptocurrency that was held by individuals using their own private keys was completely untouched, along with any decentralized exchanges. And this is kind of the final idea here for this uh, episode this week. Um, the following email screenshot, which I'll have in the show notes, um, is between the Canadian government and a decentralized exchange. And this was shared by some of my friends and offers, I think, some hope in a uh, quite unwelcome dark tunnel that we kind of find ourselves in now. So the Superior Court of Ontario asked the decentralized wallet team at Nunchuck uh, to provide their users information and freeze their accounts. And this is how this decentralized exchange uh, responded. Dear Ontario Superior Court of Justice, Nunchuck is a self-custodial, collaborative, multi-sig Bitcoin wallet. We are a software provider, not a custodial financial intermediary. Our software is free to use. It allows people to eliminate single points of failure and store Bitcoin in the safest way possible while preserving privacy. We do not collect any user identification uh, beyond email addresses. We also do not hold any keys. Therefore, we cannot freeze our users' assets. We cannot prevent them from being moved. We do not have knowledge of the existence, nature, value, and location of our users' assets. This is by design. Please look up how self-custody and private keys work. So there's a little bit more to their smug response, but I think it'll open up a rabbit hole that definitely goes beyond the scope of this podcast episode. Um, but kind of one final idea here. If uh, any of these uh, concerns or problems that were raised in this podcast um, kind of strike a chord with you, then I would also recommend uh, for you to kind of look into self-custody, private keys, and cryptocurrencies um, because I think it is quite an important issue, uh, especially if you've been following what has happened in Canada. Uh, these sorts of ideas have been kind of bubbling to the surface over the last couple of weeks. So hopefully this episode brought a little bit of clarity as to what problems uh, arose and potentially some solutions or at least some alternatives um, that can be used in the future. Well, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear and you want to support the podcast and the conversations here, the best way to do this is to go onto Apple Podcasts and leave a review as it helps the algorithm to reach out to new listeners and brings the show to them. Also, feel free to check out the website, automatedpodcast.org, where you can find the show notes for each episode, written articles on the themes of the podcast, and a library of resources on the topic of emerging tech and automation. Also, if you want to reach out and leave any feedback or you have any questions about the podcast or any of the conversations, there are general contact links such as email, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. for you there on the website. And finally, for those of you that want more than just an audio conversation, the video recordings are now going to be up on YouTube for the newer conversations. So feel free to check out the videos by searching for Automated Podcast on YouTube, where, of course, you can like and subscribe if you prefer to support the podcast that way. Thank you.
the automated podcast.